Tonight's reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 18, verses 1 to 17. It can be found on page 1114 of the Bibles in the pews, page 1114. Acts 18, starting at verse 1. Let us listen to God's word. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. When Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him into court. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Galileo said to the Jews, If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he had them ejected from the court. Then they all turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler, and beat him in front of the court. But Galileo showed no concern whatever. May God bless the reading of his word. Amen. We're in page uh, 1114 um, of the Pew Bibles. It's Acts chapter 18. Uh, tonight. So let me give you a moment just to to flick back to that passage that was read uh, by David, and we're in Corinth uh, tonight. Let me pray for us as we come to Acts chapter 18 and Paul in Corinth. Father, we've just been singing that you are Lord of all, And Father, as we come to your word tonight, would you remind us of that great truth, that you are Lord. And Father, help us as we come to this passage in Acts 18 to see how powerful the gospel is, how strong and mighty is the name of Jesus. 
for we ask it in his name. Amen. Amen. We have, over the last uh, four Sunday evenings here, been following Paul's missionary journey into the region of Macedonia, which is going to come up on the map. Uh, We've been in Philippi, where we saw Lydia and the jailer and the slave girl. Do you remember her? And and the Spirit of God, or the Spirit being removed from her. We've been in Thessalonica, Berea, and we've been to Athens last week. And tonight we are in Corinth. Corinth boasted two seaports. What a, what a city to have two seaports. One in the north of the city, another in the south of the city. It was situated on a major trade route, and it was a rival to Athens just across from it in commerce and business. It had a strong Jewish community in it. That's why you'll see in this passage it had a synagogue, but it also had the freedom that the Jews had to practice their own religion as the Roman laws gave it that. But there had many famous gods as well. Maybe you've heard of these before, and they were worshipped in Corinth. First, for example, is the god of the sea, Poseidon, and he was honored in Corinth. The other one was a major temple dedicated to the god of love, Aphrodite, where a thousand female slaves served her in the city, and at night they roamed the city of Corinth as prostitutes. Corinth was known as the city of fun. John Stott in his commentary on Corinth says this, it was the vanity fair of the Roman Empire. This is where you went on stag and hen weekends in our modern day. Corinth, the place that took over over the weekend, prostitutes, lively, all sorts of gods being worshipped. And this was the city, as you see in verse 1, do you see it? After Paul left Athens, he comes to Corinth, 37 miles by land. And here's the questions tonight. How do you reach a city like Corinth with the gospel? How do you reach a city like East Belfast or Belfast or East Belfast with the gospel? What should be the priorities and focus? What happens when you face stiff opposition in that city? And Acts 18 tonight gives us some answers to that. And the first thing you do in verses 1 to 6 is this, is gospel partnership. Firstly, there is a partnership form. Do you see it? When Paul arrived, he met a guy called Aquila, who was from Pontus. And Aquila and his wife had come from Rome, which they had left because of Claudius. He had this edict pronounced that all the Jews were to be kicked out of Rome. And so Aquila and Priscilla leave Rome and come to Corinth. And we see at the end of verse 2, do you see it there? Paul went to see them, and there's a partnership formed. Because both Aquila and Priscilla and Paul were tent makers. That means they had some sort of trade that they worked at which earned them money so that they could be self-sufficient. And we're told at the end of verse 3 that Paul worked with them. Do you see it there? It is thought that Paul either worked as a cloth maker or with leather. But whatever the trade was, this couple and Paul joined forces in Corinth. But this partnership was not only in work, it was also in faith. Listen to how Paul, writing from Ephesus later, back to Corinth, mentions this couple again. He says this, the churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord. And so does the church that meets at their house. And we'll see next week that in Ephesus, Aquila and Priscilla had set up home again, had moved And Paul is writing back to Corinth going, do you remember that couple? They send warm greetings to you. 
They've got a house group meeting in their home. Later in the book of Romans, they will, Paul will write this about them. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Here were a couple who were partners with Paul in gospel ministry. They worked using the trade and gifts that God had given them, and they had a church meet in their home, and at times they traveled with Paul, which you'll see in Acts 18, verse 19 onwards, and they made a significant contribution in Ephesus, even to a guy called Apollos, who they taught more about the Lord Jesus. There's much for us to learn, I think, and to be inspired by these tent makers. How many of us here tonight have skills and gifts that could be used anywhere in the world. Some of you are doctors, nurses. Others of you work with your hands in practical trade. Some of you are students who could go anywhere, literally. Others of you are retired, enjoying the benefits of having worked all your lives and are now a little bit more free. There are many countries across our world that are closed to the gospel, but they're not closed to certain professions trades or expertise being used, where I wonder, have some of us ever considered being tent makers in a different part of this island or in countries for the sake of the gospel overseas? I've lived in Northern Ireland for five and a half years. Gets comfortable here, doesn't it? Family around, reasonable lifestyle, good church, but I wonder, what about a place in care in County Tipperary, small Presbyterian church, five meet in it? What if a couple were to go there? What if an individual who was a doctor or a teacher said, look, I'm going up sticks and go to care and help the church there and work for my living? Because the Lord gives us certain skills, particular giftings and knowledge for his glory. And I just wonder tonight, is there an Aquila in this place? Is there a couple who has never even thought, what would it mean for us to spend our retirement somewhere else? Yeah, there'd be sacrifices to it and cost. However, for the vast majority of us, our time, the type of tent making will be in this city. This area of East Belfast, where we're called to live, to study, to work and toil, and God's calling on us to be involved in gospel ministry at work in a local church amongst your neighbors and friends. But what a wonderful blessing to have a couple like Priscilla and Aquila are to a city, to a local congregation and to unbelievers. So Paul partners alongside this couple throughout the week. And then in verse four, do you see it? It says that on every Sabbath, Saturday, Paul reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade the Jews and the Greeks Paul sought to convince, he sought to persuade, argue with the Jews and Greeks. And we're told in verses 5 and 6 that when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to the preaching and testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. The word devoted here in verse 5 means to occupy yourself with the word, to spend all his time doing this. And, this, and the reason he could do this was because Silas and Timothy had brought a gift from Macedonia, presumably a financial gift 
that freed up Paul to devote himself exclusively to the preaching of the gospel to the Jews in Corinth. We know this because later Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 11, writing back to the Corinthians, he would say this, and when I was with you, Corinthians, and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone. Why? Because I earned my living. For brothers who came from Macedonia, Silas and Timothy, supplied what I needed. I keep myself from being a burden to you in any way and will continue to do so. You see, the churches in Macedonia had supplied what Paul needed so that he wasn't a burden to the Corinthians, so that he couldn't be accused of alternative, ulterior motives when preaching the gospel at Corinth. You're in this for the money, Paul. And it actually freed him up to preach the gospel to him. Small aside, don't underestimate the gift of giving. If you are a person or a family who are giving financially to those involved in full-time ministry, be encouraged that it allows them to not be a burden to certain places or churches. It frees them up to share Jesus with others. Without the generosity of churches in Macedonia, Corinth may not have heard the gospel preached for as long as it did. 18 plus months Paul spent in Corinth. That's a long time for this boy to be there preaching. And partly it's because Macedonia and the churches there, who have just come to faith, were supplying what he needed to be free to do it. I've seen a little bit of this, of giving and generosity at work in our own denomination. Let me tell you a little story. In the 1980s, there was a handful of older Presbyterians left at Kilkenny Presbyterian Church in the south of Ireland. They'd been praying for years that the Lord would do a work in that place. But guess what? They were facing closure because they weren't numerically right. Financially, they probably had a few bob. But you know what? Through the giving of God's people, through PCI's decision to place someone in Kilkenny, there came a minister first in the 1980s and then an Irish mission worker. And guess what? The gospel was preached. The Spirit of God was at work through the word and witness of the people. And just like Acts, people were added to the church. In 1992, that church built a new church building. Not for the sake of, this is our church, we need a building. The old one was beautiful. I can still, as a 12-year-old, 11-year-old, go into that place and remember tangibly the sense of God's presence in the place, even though the place was falling down a bit. God was there at work. And when God's people gathered, you knew they were meeting in his spirit. They built it because they'd outgrown the old one. And today, about 150, 200 people come along on Sunday morning to Kenny Presbyterian. How did that happen? Yes, God was at work, his spirit moving in the people and in the people that he had placed there. But it was also because the church at large, particularly up north, were funding the workers for God's mission in the Republic of Ireland. Folks, the church in Macedonia supported the gospel work of Paul so that the Corinthians could hear the gospel. We need to be continuing in this vein today, don't we? Both individually and corporately, supporting, giving, praying, so that God's gospel across God's world for the good of others and the glory of God continues. Continue giving. Who are you supporting at this moment in time? Why are you supporting them? 
Do you need to relook at it? Because here were young Christians in Macedonia supplying money, probably, to Paul to free him up to preach the gospel. And next we see in verse 5, do you see the focus or the priority in verse 5 that God's word is preached? Jesus is the Messiah. Paul is freed up to preach the gospel and notice what his focus is as he shares the gospel with these Jews at the end of 6. His focus is on the reality and the truth that Jesus was the Messiah. This today for many Jews is still a stumbling block, isn't it? That Jesus was the promised Messiah. Paul preached, testified, persuaded the Jews, he's the Messiah, Jesus. We're not told the passages that Paul went to in the Old Testament seeking to convince them that Jesus was the promised and long-awaited Messiah. I wonder what passages Paul went to. I wonder what he showed them to convince them that this was Jesus, the Messiah. If you were asked to come up with some passages, which ones would you identify with? I have a couple of ministers in the house. Do you think I should put them on the spot? Some of them are cocky. I can see it. They're looking at me going, try me. (laughs) Let's have a chat afterwards. Come up to me afterwards and say, what passage would you take somebody to if they ask you? Convince me from the Old Testament particularly that Jesus is the Messiah. Where would you go? Indulge me here. I wonder if Paul took them back to Abraham and Isaac in the Old Testament, Genesis 22, He sacrificed his only son. God sacrifices his son, the Lord Jesus, to convince them that the link with Abraham in the Old Testament. I wonder, did he take him to the prophet Isaiah? Where to this lovely verse, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin Mary will be with child and will give birth to a son and we will call him God, Emmanuel. I wonder if he took them to Micah chapter five, verse two. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrath, Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from you one who is a ruler over Israel, whose origins are of old from ancient times. You know what, Jews? Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Is he the ruler? Is he the Messiah that was promised? He persuaded, preached, argued. Did Paul take them to Jesus and say to them, do you know that Jesus rode into Jerusalem? What we would call on Palm Sunday on a what? on a donkey. Do you remember what Zechariah 9.9 foretold? Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes. Righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, a colt, the fowl of a colt, or a foal of a, a donkey. Or did Paul take them to the many references in the Psalms which showed that Jesus was to face horrific death? Psalm 22, they've pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones exposed. People stare and gloat after me. If you really were the Messiah, come down. They divide my garments, the Roman soldiers, and cast lots for my clothing. Old Testament, showing forward into Jesus. Or did they take him to the famous passage in Isaiah 53, which even today some of the Jews don't even read as scripture. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. Led like a lamb to the slaughter, like a sheep before her shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth, because he poured out his soul unto death. 
and was numbered with transgressors, yet he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Jesus is the Messiah. Lastly, did he say to them, you remember that guy, John the Baptist, with the weird clothes and the weird diet of locusts? Do you remember what he said when Jesus came? Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I wonder, did he take him to these passages? He spent 18 months in Corinth, persuading, preaching, testifying, arguing, Jesus is the Messiah. He had to take him somewhere in the Old Testament. We're told that Paul reasoned and preached and testified to Jews and Greek every Sabbath, probably on every occasion for over 18 months, telling them Jesus was the Messiah. You know what? Today, it is our same mission that we, if you want to reach East Belfast, if you want to reach your family and friends, we need to be preaching Jesus as Lord and Jesus as Savior. It doesn't change. Don't get fed up with that message. Lastly, or sorry, thirdly, let me not give you too much hope. Thirdly, (laughs) the reaction, verse 6. Look at the reaction of the Jews to this teaching that Jesus was the Messiah, verse 6. It says, they opposed Paul and became abusive. They were abusive. It may mean to Paul, but it can also mean that they became blasphemous. If you hear that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was God who had come incarnate, and you reject him, there's an element where it's blasphemy. He's not God. And that's why he says here, they opposed Paul, affronted him, and became abusive, a blasphemous. Jesus is not God. And look what Paul does. He shakes his clothes out in protest against them and says to them, blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent of it, is what my version says. I think David read, I'm, I'm free of the responsibility of it. The seriousness of all this. The gospel literally is life and death. It is judgment or forgiveness. It is this serious. And Paul feels the weight of responsibility to tell his fellow Jews about Jesus. But he also feels the seriousness of their rejection of the gospel. He tells them, blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent of your blood. I've told you the gospel. I've shared Jesus as Messiah before you. I've tried to persuade you and argue for him. In fact, you've just rejected and opposed and blasphemed and judgment will come to you. Paul's words are a reminder of an Old Testament prophet called Ezekiel who became a watchman. And the watchman's job was to warn the people of the sword that was coming. And if the watchman didn't warn the people, he was held accountable for their blood. But if he warned the people and they ignored it, their blood was on their heads. And you can read about that in Ezekiel 33. Paul declares himself innocent of the blood, of their blood, because he has tried to persuade them that Jesus is the Messiah. Paul would write in Corinthians this, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I guess it's the same today, isn't it? That all we can do as a people of God in this place is share the gospel with others. Persuade, argue, reason, convince them. But if people reject Jesus 
they bring judgment on their own heads. They bring blood on their own heads. We have a responsibility. I feel that immensely with my own family. They need to hear the gospel. I've told them, convinced them, persuaded, and they keep on loving them, keep on telling them. Do you feel a responsibility for people at work or the neighbor next door that's as hard to get a conversation with or even people in this area? Because Paul had this huge sense of responsibility and we have a command to follow. Make disciples, make Jesus known. It's a heavy weight. And then next we see in verses 7 and 8, there's a change in direction at Corinth. Did you notice that? From this moment on, Paul's attentions shift to the Gentiles predominantly in Corinth because of the wholesale rejection by the Jews here. Verse 7, Paul goes next door to the house of justice where the synagogue is, right next door, his house must have been, and Crispus, the synagogue leader in his household, have believed that Jesus is the Messiah, and they are baptized, and many of the Corinthians, you see there, who heard Paul believed and were baptized. So despite the opposition and rejection by the Jews on a large scale, there are those who have believed the good news about Jesus, which is wonderful, isn't it? And this shows us there will always be opposition and rejection to the gospel of our Lord Jesus. But there will always be those who believe. Paul sums up the contrast of opposition and belief well in 1 Corinthians when he says this, Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. Do you remember that in the gospels? Do a sign for us, Jesus. Do some miraculous wonder for us. The Greeks are looking for wisdom. Does this make sense? How does this tickle our intellect? But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The change means literally that you have the synagogue ministry on one side of the Jews and you have a house group of believers. And the question is, what will happen? Try and pick up the tension here because what we're going to look at next is important. You have the ministry of the Jews in the synagogue and they've rejected Christ as Messiah. You have a couple of believers who have believed he's the Messiah and are meeting in this guy's house probably and you're going, how is this going to gain legitimacy? How is this gospel going to get traction in the city? And this takes us to verses 9 to 11 which I've entitled Keep Going. Do you see it there? I don't know if any of you are into cycling, um, but I have a bit of fascination with the Tour de France. And this year, um, if you had a chance to look at any of the Tour de France, the cyclists who do these hundreds of miles a day are like stick men, aren't they? You know, there's not much to them. They're grueling. Their stamina is phenomenal. But I think there's one standout iconic moment really in the Tour de France this year. When a group of riders, including the yellow jersey leader, Chris Froome, crashed, his bike was broken. That's not helpful in the Tour de France, is it? And all that was in his mind was that he must keep going. So despite the cuts, bruises, and no bike, Froome starts running. Did you pick up this on the the thing? You're going, what about the bike? You know, how can you be on the Tour de France and start running? Um, And all that's in his mind is, I'm going to keep going here. 
And verses 9 to 11 are telling Paul the exact same thing, to keep going. The opposition and rejection of the gospel must have been difficult for Paul. Sad times here. His own people, the Jews, reject the promised Messiah just like he did at one stage. It must have been difficult for Paul to leave the synagogue ministry. And what we see in verses 9 to 11 is not him mustering his inner strength like Chris Froome running up the hill in the yellow jersey, but instead the Lord Jesus graciously comes to encourage Paul and he tells him literally, keep going. Keep going, Paul. See verse 9, one night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. I wonder whether Paul was wondering, should he continue in the city? Was he discouraged, downhearted because of the opposition? Paul himself said, if you read Corinthians, I came with fear and trembling to that city. And yet the Lord spoke to him here in a vision, just like he did on the road to Damascus. And he says, don't be afraid, Paul. Don't be afraid. You don't tell somebody that unless they are. So maybe he's on a knife edge and he's wondering, what way is this going to go? The synagogue is here and in all its establishment within the Roman law allowed to practice. Here's the beginning of something new, maybe. People believe in Jesus was the Messiah in a house next door. And the Lord mentions four things to Paul briefly as we finish. Do you see it in verses 9 to 11? Keep speaking and don't be silent. There can be times when we're discouraged or don't believe that the gospel has power to work. There may be opposition where people at work sneer you or family members say to you, not in my house, don't talk about Jesus here. And it's the same for Paul here. He's discouraged, probably facing the opposition. And you know what the Lord says to him? Don't be afraid, Paul. Keep preaching Jesus as Christ. Keep preaching. Keep speaking. Don't be silent, he says to him. And the reason that Paul is speak, kept told to keep on speaking about Jesus is because the word of God, as Stott says, is the divinely appointed means by which people come to put their trust in Christ and so identify them as his. You want to build a city that will know the gospel, you've got to share Jesus and preach the word. It is God's means of a, making people trust him. And the same is true today. If we want people to become followers of Jesus, they need to hear the word of God explained, preached, proclaimed, argued, and convinced so that they may know Christ as Lord. Keep speaking, Paul. Don't be silent. The second thing is that he promises that the Lord says to him, for I am with you. The promise of the presence of the Lord was to reassure Paul that the Lord was with him. And the Great Commission makes the same promise, doesn't it, to Jesus' followers today. At the very end, it says this, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. As you go to work tomorrow and share your life and the gospel of Jesus, as you head to summer camps, as you attend whatever appointments you have, he's with you, enabling you, giving you opportunities and words to say, Jesus is Lord. Thirdly, the Lord Jesus promises Paul particularly, no one will attack you and harm you. Do you see that? The promise of protection for Paul. In Philippi, he got a hiding just with Silas, didn't he? There was no promise of protection there. Here, the Lord specifically says to him, 
no harm, no one will attack you and harm you in Corinth. And what we see happen is God in his greatness and providence makes the promise that while he's in Corinth, no harm will become you, Paul. And God's promises always come true, don't we? As we see in verses 12 to 18, the Jews form a united attack against Paul and bring him before this guy called Gallio on a charge that Paul is spreading a religion contrary to the Roman Empire would allow. The Jews are trying to get the message of Jesus as Messiah banned or discredited by the Roman governor. But I like this guy, Gallio. He sees right through their scheme and says to them in verse 14, do you see it there? If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it will be reasonable for me to listen to you. But then he totally dismisses them. But it involves questions about words, names, and your own law. Settle the matter yourselves. No harm or attack came upon Paul because God keeps his promise, and he always does. And the wonderful thing about Gallio's verdict is, in fact, that it allowed for the gospel to be endorsed publicly as a legitimate religion, if you want to put it that way, within the Roman-controlled current. And you're left thinking, how sovereign is God? How great is he to keep his promises to his servants and his people? And then the other poor boy gets an awful hiding. Did you see that? The synagogue leader. Which I think is by Gallio's own men. And he doesn't give a hoot. And then fourthly and lastly, which I love the little part at the end, Jesus said to Paul, don't be afraid Keep on speaking. No harm will befall you. I have many people in this city. Keep speaking because I have many people in this city, meaning there are many more who have yet to hear the gospel who are mine. The Lord knows who are his. And so this must have been the greatest encouragement of all to this evangelist. Tonight we see a city and people reached with the gospel through gospel partnership. We see Paul's focus as he preaches Jesus as Messiah. We see the reaction of opposition and belief. We see the Lord encouraging and promising, keep speaking, I'm with you, protection, and many more who are in the city. There's much to encourage and challenge us here from Acts 18. As tomorrow we head out to meet those in work, to meet friends and family, the gospel that we read about here in Acts 18 has the same power today, to change lives, to cause opposition, but keep speaking the gospel. The Lord is with you. And that lovely little phrase, there are many people in this city that are his. There are many people at your work that are his in your families and around our parish that are his but have yet to hear the gospel. Does that not encourage you as you go to work tomorrow? There are many people in this city, Paul, that belong to me. Keep preaching. Keep speaking about Jesus. I wonder, is the Lord going to encourage you tonight by thinking, I wonder who they are at work. I wonder who they're going to be in my family. I wonder within this parish boundary who we're going to reach and the Lord will get the glory and honor for it. Keep speaking. Don't be silent. Let's pray.
Lord, we thank you for your word to us tonight. We thank you for the encouragement it is. And yet in the back of our minds, Father, we're going, but this is Paul. This is the apostle. And yes, there are certain things that are exclusively for him. But Father, we thank you that you're calling a people unto yourself that will proclaim your glories and praises and tell people about Jesus. And we pray tonight as your people here that you'll encourage us with the power of the gospel, that the name of Jesus can forgive, give eternal life, new life to people like us and to those that we'll meet tomorrow morning. Father, we pray that we'd keep on speaking about Jesus. Thank you that you're with us like you promised in the Great Commission. Father, thank you that you don't promise us protection. There will be opposition. There will be those snide remarks, those opposition to what we say, those who dislike what we, who we are and what we have to say. But we thank you, Lord, that you have many more people in this place who will one day declare your praises to. And we pray, Father, as your witnesses, that you'll help us to remember these truths and principles for your own glory and honor. Lord, bless us tomorrow as we head out to work and spend time with family and live out in this community what it means to know Jesus. For we ask it in his name. Amen. Amen. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you tonight and always. Amen.